Welcome to Genomics Essentials in Hematologic Malignancies, a podcast series brought to you by the American Society of Hematology, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and the France Foundation. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, Abvi, Diachi Sankyo, Pharmacyclics, and Illumina. As medical professionals, it's important that we stay up to date on the latest developments in genomic testing and understand how to interpret those test results as well as select the appropriate therapeutic agents to manage hematologic malignancies. This podcast will focus on therapeutic testing for acute lymphocytic leukemia or ALL. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Diaz, a practicing hematologist and medical oncologist in the community. And I'm joined by Dr. Emily Curran, who is an assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Curran, how are you doing today? Hi, great. Thanks so much for having me. Let's get started with some questions. So when it comes to ALL, what would you say is your standard workup for a newly diagnosed patient? Yeah. So when I have a patient where we're worried about acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL, there's some kind of standard things that I always do and then some other patient-specific things. So first off, all of these patients obviously need a bone marrow biopsy. And when I send off the bone marrow biopsy, I also send typically, um, in addition to the standard cytogenetics with karyotyping, I also like to look for high-risk disease because that will affect our treatment approaches in the future. One of the things that I will send off, so first off, if a patient has B-cell ALL, then I typically first off will look for Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL with the 922 translocation. But if they don't have that, then there's some additional testing that can be done. And I typically do a FISH panel to look for the standard ALL chromosomal changes. But then I also send off testing for Philadelphia chromosome-like ALL. And that's a fairly recently described subtype of ALL that I think um, is becoming more and more well-known, but it's associated with a worse outcome. And so I will typically make sure that if the patient does not have Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL, I will send off a special fish panel for pH-like ALL. That's important because those patients tend to not respond to treatment and probably may benefit from a transplant in the future. In addition to those cytogenetics that I send off, it's always crucial that you look for extra medullary disease. Um, So every patient should get a lumbar puncture at diagnosis. And if it's a male, you have to assess for testicular involvement as well, either with an exam or with an ultrasound. And then finally, if it's a, somebody with a T-cell ALL, um, it's really important that you reach out to your pathologist. So I always reach out to my pathologist and look for the immunophenotype, which is called early T-cell precursor or ETP ALL, because again, that's associated with a worse prognosis. So a lot of this is doing some risk stratification from the get-go because it's hard to go back in time to add those on. Dr. Curran, myself, I'm a general hematologist and oncologist in the community, and I'll be quite frank with you. Um, The average generalist will probably see one case every two or three years at best. And as our most malignancies, um, ALL is also advancing at a fast rate. Testing, diagnoses, classification, risk stratification, and treatments, they're all advancing at a fast rate. So I, I personally always prefer to have a specialist involved as soon as possible. What are your thoughts about 
treatments, uh, diagnosis in the community setting versus getting an expert involved as soon as possible? So I think you bring up a good point. If you are a practitioner who only sees an ALL patient every year, every couple of years, like you said, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Things are advancing really quite rapidly in the field, but it also, I think things are getting quite complicated um, and our regimens are, to be honest, they're, they're really quite confusing. As somebody who sees a lot of ALL, I'm always happy to either see a patient to kind of give some advice and then send them back to help kind of co-manage treatment. I give out my cell phone readily, my email, I would say just reach out to somebody who who treats a lot of ALL to give advice. We're always happy to do that. And then, you know, sometimes the patient can't travel all the way here, and I'm always more than happy to help co-manage. But, you know, I, I think it's tough. These treatments can be very challenging. And I think even if you as a physician or me as a physician, even if we understand how to give these treatments, sometimes it gets really complicated too with the supportive care. If the nursing staff aren't as familiar, if the pharmacy staff aren't as familiar, it can be very difficult to to give some of these regimens um, at a place that doesn't see a lot of ALL. So obviously patient first, whatever makes the is best for the patient. Um, and we're always happy to help however we can. Okay, so let's just take a couple of steps back um, and some of the things that you had talked about. You brought up a lot of very good points, but let's say that I have a patient and I can't get them to an academic center quickly or a center of expertise quickly. Um, you had mentioned um, NGS testing. Now, is this NGS testing on the blood, on the bone marrow? Does it have to be a particular type of NGS testing? So NGS, which is the next generation sequencing, is becoming more and more commonly used in a variety of different malignancies, and ALL is no different. So we often will do next-generation sequencing on our patients with ALL. There are a variety of different vendors who do this, or sometimes it's at an academic center, sometimes it's done in-house, but there are also places where you can, um, if you don't have it in-house, it can uh, easily be sent out. For ALL, unfortunately, unlike AML, we don't really have many targeted treatments as of yet. I still find it helpful, and I send it off on all of my patients at the time of diagnosis. And part of that is really a risk stratification. Uh, We know certain mutations, such as IKZF1, are associated with worse outcomes. And so it, it kind of helps you risk stratify with your patient. So I do like to get those. I can't say right now that any one is necessarily better than any other. So I would say just get some type of genetic analysis done. Whatever is available at your institution um, is likely sufficient. And we do really, at this point, we don't have a whole lot of guidelines or recommendations on exactly what to do with those. But I, I do find it helpful, mostly for risk stratification from the beginning. Now, when it comes to diagnosis, if I have something diagnosed in one of my hospitals uh, that I work in, usually the pathologist typically who's evaluating things, odds are they're probably not a board-certified hematopathologist. How crucial is it at the beginning to identify the most accurate subtype of acute lymphocytic leukemia? And is that something that can be challenging? Is that something that is best worked with an organization that's got more expertise? So the diagnosis itself, acute ALL, For the most part, I think that this is something that many pathologists can identify. Um, There's some pretty standard markers. 
I think where it gets more challenging, though, is in things such as that ETP ALL, that early T precursor ALL, where there's some subtleties in the immunophenotype that can sometimes be a little bit more challenging to identify and to subset out. So I think in those cases, it's helpful to get an expert opinion on the pathology as well. One thing I think I failed to mention when when we're talking also about cytogenetics, I think kind of going to that point as well, some places will have in-house cytogenetics, but many won't. But some, uh, most of these, uh, including those that pH-like fish panel, most of these are actually available commercially. And so these are things that you can, if you don't have them immediately in-house, these are things that can be sent out um, and are, again, are very important at the time of diagnosis. How do you choose your treatments for newly diagnosed patients with ALL? Yeah, so I think this is also one of those areas that's really rapidly changing. For patients with a B-cell ALL, my first step is always, always to check for the Philadelphia chromosome. So that's the 922 translocation, the BCR able fusion, similar to what's seen in CML. And the reason for that is that in my practice, my, my treatments really change based on whether or not there is the Philadelphia chromosome. So we know historically for those patients, they've had worse outcomes. But now with tyrosine kinase inhibitors added onto treatment, they have similar outcomes to our other patients with ALL. And there's some now emerging data that perhaps those patients don't even need chemotherapy. And so I, I really, if somebody has a Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL, I want to identify that first because it will affect my chemotherapy. And there's actually an ongoing trial for those patients as well through the cooperative groups that I'll put those patients on. But I think that's always my first step with B-cell ALL. And that's kind of our, our really one targeted approach that we have for ALL. And then beyond that, I look at age. So we know that younger patients with ALL, so ages 18 to 40, um, there's a lot of data that those patients may benefit from what's called a pediatric-based regimen. So when they're treated with kind of the same regimens that we use at pediatric centers, they, they tend to have better outcomes as when you compare them to historically those same age patients treated with what we would consider adult regimens. And so the younger patients I will treat with a pediatric regimen. The older patients, so we're talking ages 60 and above, those are really challenging. And those are the patients that I feel pretty strongly need to be on a clinical trial. We know that those are the patients when treated with intensive regimens such as hypercevad, which is what I would consider to be an adult chemotherapy regimen. They do very poorly because of toxicity. And so there's multiple ongoing trials looking at ways to improve the outcomes for these patients because our current treatments just don't work very well. So 18 to 40 pediatric-based regimen, 60 and above, I try to put them on a trial if at all possible. And then ages 40 to 60, I think that the data is really, it's a lot less clear. We don't quite know how to treat those patients. I will say if it's somebody really fit, certainly under the age of 50 or maybe even under the age of 55, I think that the data supports using these so-called pediatric-based regimens in those patients. 
And then if they're unfit, again, they, they probably are going to have a lot of toxicity from chemotherapy. And so maybe those are patients that you want to think about a less intensive approach or to see if they're eligible for any of the ongoing clinical trials. One of the newer diagnostic therapeutics that we hear about whenever we are attending any type of a seminar on ALL involves the use of a new three-letter term that didn't exist when I was doing my training about 20 years ago, and it's called MRD. Could you sort of elaborate more about what MRD is and how it's used? So I think this is really one of these really great advancements that have been made in the past decade or so in ALL and has really changed our practice. Historically, MRD was considered, it, it was termed, it was minimal residual disease. I think now a lot of people are changing the term to call it measurable residual disease. And I'll kind of explain why that's the newer, maybe more preferred term for that. So MRD so minimal or measurable residual disease, is really referring to any disease that is present that you can't detect with a kind of a standard cytomorphology. So what I tell my patients is the pathologist looks at the bone marrow biopsy, and when they look at it under the microscope, they don't see any leukemia. But we know that many of those patients still relapse, and it's probably because they have some of this MRD, some residual disease. And so there's several different ways to identify minimal or measurable residual disease. Historically, what we have used is something called flow cytometry. So this is not the flow cytometry that is done kind of standardly at every institution. This is a special, more sensitive flow cytometry um, that has to be at a validated institution or through a validated testing service. The sensitivity for this is for flow cytometry is typically 10 to the minus fourth. So that's how sensitive the test is for detecting this MRD. That's what historically has been used. And what I think most of the trials, when we talk about patients being MRD positive, that's the sensitivity that we're really talking about, 10 to the minus fourth. Now, over the past five to 10 years or so, we have now newer and better ways to identify minimal or measurable residual disease that are a lot more sensitive. And so one of the ones that's available in the United States and commercially available that anybody can send if you wanted to send it from your patient is using, again, that next generation sequencing, using it to identify MRD. And the way that this is done is that you take the patient's diagnostic sample and they actually will sequence it to see what the clonal T-cell receptor or B-cell receptor are. So they look to see what was present at diagnosis. And then they can actually track that as the patient undergoes treatment. Now, the thing with this is that, so again, the flow 10 to the minus fourth, this one typically has a sensitivity of 10 to the minus sixth or sometimes even better, 10 to the minus seven. So we're talking about, you know, I tell my patients a cell in a million, right? So it's, it's much, much more sensitive. But probably as our technology evolves, we'll get even better tests. And so it may be that, you know, 10 years from now, we'll, we're able to detect cells at 10 to the minus 10th or, t- you know, 10 to the minus 11th. And so that's why I think people have started to use that term measurable residual disease, because as our technology gets better, we're able to detect disease at a a more and more sensitive level. So it's really 
what can we measure with our current technology, and that's MRD. So at what time and points would you typically recommend MRD testing? You'd mentioned on the diagnostic sample or specimen. Um, What are some of the other times that you recommend that this be looked at or tested? You don't have to do it at diagnosis unless you're going to use the more sensitive test. So if you're going to be using the next generation sequencing approach, you need to know what the clone was from the beginning. And so then you send it off at diagnosis. If you're going to use flow, you don't have to send it at diagnosis. But what I typically will do is um, we know that there's certain time points that are really crucial in measuring MRD. One of those is at the end of induction. So that's typically at the end of four weeks of treatment. And you can measure that either, again, with flow cytometry, which is pretty readily available, or next-generation sequencing, which, again, has become more and more available and is commercially available. But it's really crucial to get that at the end of induction because you want to see how they responded. And then the other time point that I typically use is the end of consolidation. So this is usually, you know, it depends on the regimen that you're using, but I usually will say about three months after the start of treatment, measuring MRD again, either whatever way is available to you. Because if somebody still has MRD at that point, that seems to be highly predictive of a relapse in the future. How do you use MRD to make treatment decisions? So if a patient is MRD positive at the end of consolidation, so the end of three months, I feel pretty strongly that those are the patients that need to be referred for a stem cell transplant. I would like to point out that when we're talking about testing this minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease, it is really important that when you're making these decisions about transplant, This needs to be measured off of the bone marrow, and it needs to be a first pull off of the bone marrow. If you were at a center where radiology does a lot of these bone marrow biopsies, or perhaps you have a a group of practitioners who will do the bone marrow biopsies for you, I think it's really important to communicate with them that this is a patient, I'm getting an MRD, it needs to be a first pull or a separate pull. What I'll often do is I'll actually move the needle and get a whole separate pull because it's such a critical time point. And this is where you're going to be making the decision for the patient, whether or not to take them to transplant. And that's a huge clinical decision. So it is a bit of extra work to make sure that that's a first pull, but I think that that's really important. For those patients that are MRD positive before a transplant, are there any other unique therapies that you may want to recommend that they use prior to proceeding with the transplant? Yeah, so we know from prior studies that patients who undergo transplant who are MRD positive prior to transplant have worse outcomes. And so if you can, it's really important to try to convert those patients to MRD negative prior to transplant. For B-cell ALL, one way that you can try to do that is a drug called blenitumumab. This was recently approved for patients who are MRD positive, who are in remission, but MRD positive after chemotherapy. Um, And this is a, what's called a bispecific T-cell engager or 
bite antibody. And what it does is it binds to CD3 on the T cells and CD19 on the leukemia cells. And it's basically like an immunotherapy um, and it helps eradicate that MRD prior to transplant. And, you know, many of us feel that if you can get rid of that MRD prior to transplant, hopefully your outcomes post-transplant will be better. The challenge that we're facing right now is for patients with T-cell ALL, because again, blenitumumab is a treatment only for B-cell ALL. There are currently ongoing trials looking at ways to eradicate MRD prior to transplant in patients with T-cell ALL. So we'll see. Um, I think those trials are ongoing. And so if you have a patient with T-cell ALL who is MRD positive, if you don't have that, that trial open, it's maybe worth reaching out to others across the country and to see if that's something that your patient may benefit from prior to transplant. Um, but I think whatever you can do to get that patient, convert them from an MRD positive to MRD negative is, is really crucial. So I think one of the key takeaways that I have from our few moments we've had together, Dr. Curran, is that ALL is a very unique and complex condition. It sounds like that you need to have the expertise involved all the way up front from diagnostic testing at the beginning and for all the treatment decisions that are made to try to have the most successful outcome for a patient. And so, you know, it sounds like that, uh, you know, patients would definitely benefit by having access to the expertise in one way or another, if at all possible, at a center of expertise. So I would like to thank you for your time today. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Genomics Essentials in Hematologic Malignancies, a discussion about ALL therapeutic testing. We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging. Please tune into our other podcast episodes for insightful discussions about AML, MDS, CHIP, CLL, myeloma, and lymphoma. You can find the full list of podcast episodes at hematology.org and lls.org.